Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. We are going to be in um, a lot of scripture this evening, so you're going to be flipping around a lot. Uh, The first passage we're going to be in is in Acts chapter 19, if you want to go ahead and get there. Acts chapter 19. And we're, we're coming to an end. Uh, two more lessons of kind of the general overview. And then we get into the 43-month study. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, of the end times. <clears throat> um, I think it's Acts 19. Let me just double check. Call me here. Yeah, Acts 19. <clears throat> Find it, Connor. He left it here. Oh, this morning? Did you have to remind him to not mess with the tabs I put in there? They're not uneven. I used I used the the measuring thing that they sent me. The first four I put a little low, but first four books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. If you can't know that, then we got bigger issues. Thank you, Father, for buying me a new Bible and putting tabs in it for me. I can take the effort to squish it up a little bit to see what the tabs say. All right. So the, uh, the last time we met, of course, we didn't have last week because of Fifth Sunday, but the time before that, we really began looking at kind of things on that, that whole timeline we've been looking at with the, the church age and then eternity. We've been looking to the right side. Uh, of the church age and seeing signs that we are approaching the end of the age. And again, when we talk about the end of the age, we're talking about the end of the age of the Gentiles, which will happen when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. Um, so we saw, you know, some things we're going to have to see. We have to see the rise of the apostasy in the church, uh, the regathering of Israel, uh, which we've seen those two. Then, of course, the rise of ten world leaders which we can't really say we've seen, and of course the return of Elijah, which we definitely have not seen. Um, and Jesus warned us that towards the end we would suffer, we would uh, learn, we would have birth pangs that signal the end of the world. And like birth pangs are going through labor, they they get uh, harder and more frequent as we go on. And he said we'd see things like false messiah, uh, world wars, earthquakes, famines, and these things uh, in and of themselves they're not unique but they, they do give us a pattern that we can follow. They grow in frequency and severity, and they let us know that they are signs of the end of the age. Uh, and we ended by saying that there are the three major events that have to happen that will conclude the age of the Gentiles. The first was the, the tribulation, or what the Bible calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, this is Daniel's final week of his 70 weeks uh, that he envisioned in his book. But, but before that... Uh, it has to be the coming of the Lord, or what we call the rapture of the church. Today, we're going to look at the third event that has to happen before the end of the age of the Gentiles. Now, the end of the age of the Gentiles, again, is when Jesus returns to set up his earthly kingdom. It's not the rapture. It's not the tribulation. It is when he returns to set up his earthly kingdom. Now, after he does that, there's a lot that happens uh, during the thousand-year millennial reign. He, Jesus, uh, Satan's locked in a bottomless pit, and then he's released, and so that's a, that's a, we're going to get into that 
later in the, the deep study. We're just looking now to the end of the age of the Gentiles. <clears throat> but that really, uh, that re- what happens during that time to lead up to the tribulation is really not something that the, 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 that we as believers should be focused on. Now we should be aware of it. We should know what, what the Bible says and know what's going to happen. But it's really not our major focus and our major concern. Our major concern we saw last time was the coming of our bride. Or uh, the coming of the groom. We, we as the bride are to prepare ourselves and be ready for when the groom returns to claim us. Because we don't know when it's going to happen. It can happen at any time. And so we need to be, make sure that we're prepared for when he does return. Uh, and following that, the tribulation was going to come. And then we're going to come to this event. So tonight, uh, we're going to look at the departure of Christ. Now, re- understanding his return, which is what we're leading up to, uh, to understand his return, you got to understand why he left in the first place. Um, so the story of Christ's departure, it starts with what we call the messianic miracles. Um, now, we're going to look at some background uh, of the messianic miracles that come out of Jewish writings of the day. They are not in Scripture, but they are referenced in Scripture. We see them and the, the principles of these writings in Scripture, but they're, they're writings outside of Scripture that the Scripture uh, backs up. Um, kind of like uh, last week, you know, we, we saw about the, the tradition of the groom, of the marriage. You know, that's not in Scripture, but Jesus talking about it, people understood because of the culture of the day. Um, so it, it was possible in the days of the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for ordinary men to perform miracles if they were equipped by the Spirit of God. We, we see this throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Samson was the, the person in the Old Testament who the Spirit of God came upon him more than any other person. Uh, and Samson was empowered by the Spirit of God to do incredible things. Uh, but throughout Scripture, besides just the, the feats of strength of Samson, uh, we see a lot of different things happening. We see healings. Uh, people being healed of diseases. We see people being raised from the dead. And then we see exorcisms. Now, exorcism, of course, is casting out a demonic spirit that is inhabiting the body of a human. We've actually seen, we see this in the New Testament. Not only Jesus does this, but his apostles are, are empowered to do this uh, also. This is something, these are things that regular, what we would call regular or layman people, were able to do as long as they were empowered by God to do so. But there were miracles that the rabbis concluded that only the Messiah would be able to do. That no ordinary human could do these things, no matter how much you were empowered by the Spirit, the only person who could perform these miracles was God in the flesh, was the Messiah. And they, these were, were given as a sign for people to look to so they could recognize the Messiah when he came and performed these miracles. Now, there are three of them that they said, everybody get these, by the way, before I click next. Okay, um, there were three miracles that only the Messiah was able to do. The first one was healing of a Jew of leprosy. Uh, in the Old Testament, we, we see a Gentile be healed 
from leprosy, but he does so by going to the Jordan River, dipping in ten times, coming out new. The only person who could heal a Jewish person of leprosy, the Pharisees concluded, was the Messiah. Uh, and this was only something the true Messiah could do while he was on earth. And we saw Jesus did that in um, Mark and uh, Matthew 6, Mark 1, and Luke 5, 18 and 17. Um, now, uh, Jesus did this three times, as recorded in the Bible. Um, the second one was healing a man who was born blind. Now, again, in Scripture, there were people who were blinded later in life, and they were healed by apostles, by priests or prophets, but only the Messiah could heal someone who was born blind. And Jesus did this in uh, John chapter number 9. The last one was uh, exercising a demon that was inhabiting the body of someone who could not speak. We're going to get into why this is possible and why this is important. But Jesus, is the Messiah, was the only one who could uh, exercise a demon from a mute person. And, that, and we're going to look at those. We're done in Matthew 12 and Luke chapter 13. Um, and this also, the instance that we're going to look at tonight, shows us why Jesus left in the first place. Now, a lot of us have kind of um, weird ideas or kind of images in our head when you think about an exorcism. What do you what do you typically think about? Think about demons, but we always have that you know the 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 exorcist, the, the movies. You know their their heads spinning around and they're speaking you know Latin backwards and and all kinds of stuff. And we have this idea about what an exorcism is. And also, if you actually believe in exorcisms and demons, you know people think you're crazy, or you seem a little too interested in it. Uh, C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, we're not going to do either. We need to understand, demons exist. They are active in the world today. They are, are, are now, there are no, there are no ghosts. You, know, you hear people say, oh, you know, my, my grandmother visited me as a ghost. No, Granny did not. Uh, maybe a demon visited you as a ghost, but Granny is either in heaven or hell and ain't coming back from either one. Uh, hopefully, she's in heaven, but knowing your Granny, probably not. Um, <laughs> I never knew your Granny. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Granny's there because she had to deal with your dad. Um you know, the demons are clearly shown in Scripture. Jesus interacted with them. And they didn't disappear when Jesus left. They're still active on the world today. They're still around. They're still working. They are still inhabiting people and, and uh, oppressing people. Now, there were specific ways that exorcisms had to take place in Scripture for it to be a true exorcism for it to be a true casting out of a demon, for it to be recognized as effective. The first way that you had to, exercise, you had to uh, practice exorcism was a Jewish man would be empowered by the Spirit of God 
to cast demons out of the body of a person. This was not a parlor trick. Uh, this was not magic. The Spirit of God, working in and through someone, gave them the power and the authority to cast out demons. This is where we come to Acts chapter 19. Uh, I want to start reading verse number 11. <clears throat> and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. Then, a certain, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of Sivica, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, this wasn't meant to discredit uh, exorcisms or the fact that Jewish exorcisms happened. In fact, the opposite. Because at the very beginning, Paul was casting out demons. Uh, and these men, they were... Their, their, their job was exorcist. They did this successfully, regularly. Regularly they would be called, they would be empowered by God to cast demons out of people who had been indwelled by them. Their mistake was thinking that they could throw out the name of Jesus or the name of Paul and force the outcome that they wanted without getting God involved. God in this instance, was not working through them. God, in this instance, had not empowered them to do what they were trying to do. So they were trying to work without the Spirit of God on them. But they had done this before. This was, that's, why they, that's why they're trying it. They're not just coming out and saying, hey, Paul's making good money casting out demons, let's give that a shot. No, this is something they, were, they had done. They were known for being able to do but now they're trying to do it in their own strength and their own ability instead of having God do it for them. Yes? Who says we don't? I don't see it. You don't see? All right. Again, we have a misconception about demon possession. Where people act crazy? Have you watched the news lately? You don't have crazy. You don't have crazy people in your life. I'm aware. Okay. I have. I refused. Yes, I have. Oh, it was back in Hammond. Years ago. Yeah, I'm not equipped now. Because <laughs> we're going to get into how the exorcism has to happen. But, we, again, we, we, we have this idea about, you know, if you're possessed of a demon, your head's spinning around and you're spewing, you're spew, you know, puking blood. But, really, if you really look at it, even the maniac of Gadara, we would look at that and say, he's just mentally ill. Or, or he's on drugs. Not saying that there's not mental illness is real. I'm not. I'm not discrediting that. I'm not saying anyone's got a mental illness is possessed by a devil. But there are some who, 
Maybe it is. I mean, he just looked mentally ill. This guy here, he's just, he, he's acting mentally ill. So, I mean, the one we're going to look at later, he's self-harming. Again, not saying that everybody does that's possessed of a devil, just saying these are, it's not head spinning around, you know, flames coming out of your eyes. It's, it's abnormal behavior. Yeah. What makes people try to ride, raid a capital? <laughs> yeah. We see it. We just don't recognize it. We don't. Yeah, we can be either, we can ignore it or we can ex make it extreme. Yes. Right. So, and there's, right. No, you're good, you're good. Now, the second rule, um, all right, we already looked at Acts. So the second rule is they had to follow a prescribed manner. God gave them a formula to cast out a demon. Um, and it was how God allowed them to do it. Now look over at Luke chapter 8. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And he, when he went forth to the land, to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him, and was kept, he was kept bound in chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him, that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them, and went, then went the devils out of the man, and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake, and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled, and went out and told it in the city and in the country. Then, uh, I've already read too much. All right, anyway, so we see the process there. Jesus modeled this method. He comes to uh, the gatherings. He finds this man who's in the tombs that's acting crazy, He's naked, he's hurting himself, uh, no one can, can control him, so they kind of chain him up, and then Jesus shows up. And then Jesus shows us, and again, this method is documented in extra-biblical writings in the Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew, but we see it here. He follows the method that God had given them on how to cast out a demon. Did anyone recognize it? You can't answer, because you know. Huh? What did Jesus do to cast, what was the method he used to cast out this demon? 
I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 30. He asked his name. According to uh, writings, if you were to cast out, if God empowered you to cast out a demon, you had to learn its name. If you didn't learn his name, you couldn't cast it out. That's why I can't do it. I don't know their names. I really don't want to know. I don't want to be hanging around pig farms. Uh, that's not the, you didn't have to put it in pigs. But anyway, uh, you had to learn their name. And so if you were going to be empowered by God, you had to talk to the demon through the person. You had to learn their name and use their name to cast them out. So if a demon chose to answer you and speak to you, you could learn the name and then through the power of God you would cast them out and you were done. Jesus used that method. Now, the last thing that you were had to do was uh, God would set limits on their power to reserve certain miracles for the Messiah. So there were some things God would not empower a regular person to do that they were only going to be uh, uh, saved for the, for the um, Messiah to do. And one of those big ones was God prohibited anyone else besides Jesus from casting out a demon from a mute person, from someone who could not speak. There's a reason for that. Makes sense. If you can't talk to the person, what can you not learn? Their name. So if you can't learn the name of the demon in them, you can't cast out the demon. But Jesus, as a son of God, already knows the name. He doesn't have to get... And even if he didn't need know their name, as God in the flesh, he has the power to do anything. So this power, this miracle was reserved uh, for the Messiah. So now look over in Mark chapter 9. Yes. Well, the demons know women tremble. Yes. Or Mike, yeah. A Michael, a Hope, Olivia. I don't, I mean, we, we see everything, I mean, every name, we only see one name in Scripture, and it's a weird one. So if I'm going on Scripture, i got to be, it's, it's unique. But... Personally, and I read again. I can't. There's no. There's a book that I read. Um, this piercing darkness. Have anyone ever read it? Piercing the darkness, and then there's this present darkness. There's two of them. Piercing the darkness and this present darkness by Frank Perietti. They're 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 fiction books. Connor would like them. They they're in my office. You can get them from me. Um, they are fiction books, but they're Christian fiction, and he kind of posits that this 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 pastor who goes through a trauma, but he has the he he's kind of given the ability to see the demons that are oppressing people, and their names are uh, greed and lust and all this stuff. So, and he kind of sees these wicked demons on, and you know, depression and stuff like that. So, it, it could just be that I don't know. Um, I don't really want to learn. I, I don't, you know, it's like, oh, well, God will empower you. I don't, I don't want to mess with him. I'm, I'm going to leave him alone. Well, God will give you the power. Eh, maybe he'll give it to someone else. <laughs> Just because it was so many.
Yeah, like Michael or Susan. One of them, and I did find this, it's not in the scripture, but it's an extra biblical writing. One of the biggest demons was Fontaine. That's Sue's middle name. (laughs) The worst demon of all, Fontaine. (laughs) All right, Mark 9, chapter 17. And one of the multitudes answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Doesn't mean his kid's an idiot. Everybody's kid's an idiot. (laughs) Means his son cannot speak. His son is mute. So we have a demon indwelling a mute. So no one else can cast out this demon except the Messiah, because no one can learn his name. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples, and they could that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answered and said unto him, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now the disciples could not cast this demon out because the son was mute. So they could not speak to him. They could not learn his name. They could not perform this miracle. Why was Jesus so mad? Because they were, they were trying to do something contrary to the rules of God. They knew the rules and they were trying to break them. They were trying to do something besides what God had allowed them to do. Um, only the Messiah could do what they were trying to do. So now look at verse number 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch as many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when, the, when he was come unto the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now, when he talks about this kind, he's referring to the muteness of the demon. And he says, this can only come out through prayer and fasting. Now, this does not mean that if you come across a mute demon and you pray enough and fast enough, then you can do it. But when you pray and fast, what are you doing? You're talking to God. You're asking God to do something that only God can do. And in context of this, Jesus saying this kind only comes out by God, which is Him, not by men. And so, but why did, why, did, why did God reserve this type of miracle for the Messiah? Why not let just anybody do it? We'll look over in Matthew 12. You're getting used out of those tabs, aren't you, Connor? Matthew 12, we're going to start in verse 22. If I can get there. There we go. All right. Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Now, this seems like a a normal day on the road with Jesus. There, There are crowds there. Uh, they've gathered together to watch him. He performs a miracle that only the Messiah can do. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> and all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Now, 
the son of David is another reference to the Messiah. And you kind of got to understand when you look at the original how they're asking this. They're not marveling, this is the son of David. They are questioning, this is who we've been waiting for? This guy? This, this carpenter's kid? This nothing? Because Jesus, the Bible tells us, you know, he, he was nothing to look upon. He wasn't, you know, again, we have this kind of idea about Jesus that he's this, you know, super tall, super handsome, rugged man. And he, he wasn't. He was, he was a, a normal looking guy. He just looked like everybody else. Most of us, if we had Satan and Jesus in front of us, we think Satan was Jesus because he's beautiful. He's lovely. He's what we expect the Messiah to be. And so they're looking at him like, that, that's the Messiah? You know, they knew the teachings. They knew only the Messiah could cast out a demon, but they're like, this can't be him. This can't be who we're waiting on. We're waiting on a warrior. We're waiting on a, a mighty king. We're waiting on someone spectacular, not this guy. Um, so they asked the question, is this really the Messiah? You know, the problem was no one saw Jesus as the Messiah. So they asked, is this really the son of David? Now, who are they asking? If you put yourself in, your, in their, their place, you've been waiting your entire life for the Messiah. You've been taught what he's going to do when he shows up, how, he's, how you're going to be able to recognize him. This guy shows up on the scene and starts doing things that you know only the Messiah could do, but you don't think he's the Messiah. Like, this can't be who I'm waiting on. Who are you going to ask? No. You're going to ask your spiritual advisor. You're going to ask the Pharisees. You're going to go to those people who should know. Is this really the guy? Or should we wait on someone else? And so they're asking the Pharisees, is this really who we're going to, to, to expect? Now the Pharisees, they had been following Jesus, not to follow him, but to observe him. And so the, they're in the crowd and they ask him if this is the Messiah. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub the prince of the devils. They say he's not the Messiah. What he's doing is not through the power of God, it's through the power of Satan. Now look at uh, Jesus' reply. <clears throat> and Jesus knew their thoughts because he's the Messiah. Um, uh, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Abraham Lincoln did not say that first, Jesus said it first. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your, your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. His, his logic is simple. He's saying, you know, you're saying I'm doing this by the power of Satan. But demons cannot cast out demons because they're all on the same team. Why would they do that? Why would they fight against each other? And then he says, and if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, what about you guys? What about your sons who have cast out devils? Are they doing it by the power of Satan as well? But if I'm, if I'm again, he says, but if, uh, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. He goes, but if I'm truly doing this by the Spirit of God, then I am the Messiah. And you need to recognize who I am. It's a, it's a strong argument. If they know what he is doing is done only by God, then God has come to them and they need to worship him as God. 
Now let's summarize real quick what we and we this we're not this is not it, but let's look at what we've um, summarized so far. First we thing we notice. Jesus heals a man who is possessed by a demon, and this man is mute. The crowd recognizes this as a miracle that only the Messiah could perform. Israel's leaders, they rejected his testimony of the Holy Spirit by calling it the work of Satan. Now, there's a term for that. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It is, what we're going to look at, is, is, a, is a pretty big deal. Now, because of their testimony, because of what the Pharisees say about Jesus, the crowd accepted their conclusion and rejected Jesus as Messiah. The leaders of Israel, on behalf of the nation of Israel, committed a terrible sin against God. Now let's look at verse 31. <coughs> wherefore, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. This is what we call the unforgivable sin. The only sin that if you commit this sin, you cannot be saved ever. A lot of people debate about what this sin is. Um, I've got an answer. I believe it is the answer because I have much smarter people who are dead to back me up. Uh, but I think this is an answer that makes a lot of sense. In the context of this chapter, the unforgivable sin is not a general thing. It's not something that just you accidentally do. It is a specific action. It was done one time and can never be done again. It is this generation of Israel rejecting Jesus to his face when he gave them undeniable proof that he was the Messiah. And they equate his work of the Spirit to the work of Satan. There was no way, based on their teachings, based on previous scripture, that they could deny what he had done, proved he was the Messiah, but they did. Now, you cannot do that today for one really good reason. You can't, you can't deny him to his face because he ain't here. He's in heaven. Uh, so because he's not working on earth anymore, we can't, he can't prove his deity to us and us reject him to his face. So that is not the unforgivable sin. It's a very specific sin. Now, today, there is nothing you can do that is not forgivable by the blood of Jesus. When he died on the cross and was buried and rose again, he gave us the power to have every single sin forgiven. Now, I've heard a lot of people say the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus as your Savior. That will send you to hell. Don't get me wrong. You reject Jesus as the Messiah, you reject him as your Savior, you're going to hell because you've not accepted his gift of salvation. But it is not unforgivable sin found in the Bible. Now, there are se severe consequences because of what the Pharisees did. Because of their actions, 
because of how they blatantly and purposefully led not just themselves, but the entire crowd. They made them reject Jesus as Messiah because they didn't like him and he didn't meet their expectations. There are some severe consequences. We're going to get into a lot of them next week. But the major one we're going to look at one week is that is why Jesus left. Because he came to his own and they rejected him. He would have, and again, he knew this was going to happen. This is not a shock. You know, he didn't get here and they rejected him. He goes, oh, got to change my plans. But if he, if he would have come and they would have accepted him as Messiah, he would have stayed and set up his kingdom. That would have condemned us. I mean, he would, still would have died and risen again. But he would have stayed and set up his kingdom. But because they rejected him, he left to bring about the age of the Gentiles, the church age, for us to receive Christ and to judge Israel for their rejection of him. So the rest of it we're going to look at next week. And then the following week, we're going to look at his final return. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.